welcome back guys to the JPS podcast. Yes, I'm alive. Yes, I'm still making podcasts. It's been a while and the reason for that is I've just been extremely swamped with work, contest prep, or or the lack thereof, and making podcasts hasn't been the top of my priority list. I've had to tend to my little family and work and doing everything I need to on a daily basis. Unfortunately, I haven't had too much time for these sorts of things, but we're back and a little more free time, so expect more. And on today's episode, we have Mike and Eric again talking about training intensity and how individual personality types and differences can influence our perception of effort. And it's going to be a really good discussion for many of you who want to better understand what intensity means and some important considerations uh, relating to that in your strength and hypertrophy uh, outcomes. Just a heads up, we have the Ultimate Evidence-Based Conference uh, in Melbourne in June this year. Tickets are still available. If you haven't already got yours, be sure to do so. The link is in the description box below. Both Mike and Eric will be there, along with Sohi Lee, Brett Contreras, Lane Norton, James Krieger, Nick Tuminello, and Alan Aragon. So an all-star lineup, guys. Uh, so yeah, make sure you don't miss out on this one. Otherwise, enjoy the show. And here are Mike and Eric. So guys, today I'm privileged to have Mike Isratel, Eric Helms, and soon to be joining the show, uh, Ian McCarthy. And today we're going to be discussing a few topics that are a little bit unusual or different to what these guys typically discuss uh, in other podcasts. We're going to be talking about psychology, mental health, and how that can influence our success in physique and strength outcomes. And I wanted to talk to the guys and get some of their thoughts, experiences, opinions on how to best understand many of the common limitations related to mindset, for lack of a better word, uh, and lifestyle as they relate to lifting and dieting. So I guess it's first really important to caveat this episode with the fact that uh, nobody here, to my knowledge, is a registered psychologist, um, and being a very broad and complex topic, where I'm sure these guys are not going to claim to be experts, but I do feel that they have some great insight into how some of these things uh, affect your training, your diet, and how you're going to improve your physique and strength long term. So, welcome, guys. Thanks for having us, man. Thank you for having us. Not a problem. I think I think Mike's finished most of his his post workout drink. Is that what I'm looking at there? Uh, no, it's a kind of meal replacement. I've had like a, a bit of a, a super high carb, low fat brownie. I'm in the point in my gaining phase where food has lost much of its allure, and I am simply mm. suffering. So we can, yeah, let's you know, we can talk about that later. So I'm sure it's part of the, this general scope. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Don't, I don't know. Do, do you feel that you're maybe masked out? Do you think that that could be an issue? Uh, I reference uh, Internet et al. 2018 has already established that. (laughs) So, Eric, you're simply behind on the literature. Why do you even need to suppose it when it's been proven? (laughs) Sorry. I I have not not read up to date on that. Like like Jake said, I'm not an expert in this field. Exactly. Exactly. Neither am I. (laughs) All right, guys. Let's get into it. Enough shit talking. So, So, psychological factors and personality types... Uh, can play a big role in training effort. Uh, so I wanted to get your insight as to how people uh, use training effort or don't train hard enough um, based on you know their type of personality um, and just some 
factors that influence their general psychology around training. So Mike, do you want to give a definition of hard training, um, when it's warranted, why it's needed, and what your thoughts are? So I think hard training has two definitions that we could subscribe to. Uh, one is training that is within the overload threshold, so it's sufficiently difficult to cause uh, meaningful adaptations. And that requires, like, not to to go all the way, so to speak, but it requires some some meat and potatoes effort. Um, almost by definition, leaving some semblance of a comfort zone is very similar to how we would define the overload threshold because systemically, your body doesn't really adapt in what's technically its very comfort zone. So as you leave that zone in a transitional period or a transitional sort of realm, that's where we define as um, overloading training. So we can almost assume that that is going to be at least somewhat psychologically disconcerting. Um, for example, if you all of a sudden felt the the psychological burden of overload training in a non-training context, um, you would feel rather unamused. Um, for example, let's say that you're curling, doing bicep curls or something. It, it hurts. It's tough. And let, let's say you were just woke up in bed and your biceps felt like you were curling. You'd be like, what the? This is bad, right? So I think that goes to show that uh, especially, and I think Eric has probably a lot more to say about this than I do, folks that aren't used to hard training, when you first start to train them, that like there's people, there's business professionals that literally the last time they exerted themselves physically into that range was maybe in middle school or high school. And for them, it can be a little bit of a shock that you want them to essentially subject themselves to controlled pain. Uh, that's part one of the definition. Part two, and this is more to the point for higher level athletes and people that really want to get progress when they've already kind of milked out what they can, is training harder than you have in previous sessions. Maybe not the last session, but uh, several sessions before, sort of a historical application of overload. And eventually that process leads to training really, really hard and really, really trying in the sense of psychological effort. So, so those are the two overload conditions. And um, I think that uh, that's what you can really call hard training in, in, a, in a technical sense. Um, but um, I don't know. There's probably other ways to define it. Yeah. Eric, what are your thoughts on that? Is there anything that you want to add? I, I would just say I've had, I had an interesting um, fitness career in that I started uh, as a gem pop uh, personal trainer and then moved into training almost exclusively strength athletes and bodybuilders through um, most of the time, spending most of my time like interacting on a regular basis through prep, which is their, you know, their hardest period. So what is considered hard, especially when you're dealing with these extremes, is super subjective. Um, you know, I... I have had people who have absolutely no background in athletics, have never worked out before, very sedentary, do things that an athlete might consider a warm-up and feel like it's an insurmountable mountain to climb. Um, and I've had to bring back the level of training on many bodybuilders to something more reasonable so that they could actually progress uh, because they were actually doing too much or... Um, too much volume or either too much intensity and in, in the different definitions of it. So it's, it's interesting. I would say it's a good general rule. I would agree with Mike that like if something feels hard it's, it's, and, and it's tailored and targeted towards your uh, desired outcome and you have some experience with it, that's probably an indication that there is some overload happening. Um, but not always, you know, um, like you'll see this a lot with people who have an athletic background who get into weight training. 
you know, uh, they, they have done things that are probably a lot harder than what is required for them to first make progress in the weight room. You know, if they've ran, you know, a marathon or if they were a triathlete or if they played a contact sport, you know, and, and they, they're used to getting punched in the mouth uh, as a regular part of their training. Um, and, you know, they have roughly kind of novice levels of muscle mass. Yeah, doing three sets of 10 twice a week is going to max out like their, their level of progress. And that doesn't feel very hard to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's interesting. It really depends on the person. Uh, that's all I would say is that um, the goal should be, as any athlete, uh, to make effective progress. Uh, and whether or whether or not that feels hard or not uh, may or may not. I mean, it matters because it could become a barrier. Um, but it's it's not necessarily the goal. The goal isn't to to do hard work. The goal is to make progress. Yeah, awesome. And I guess in terms of you use the word feel, there um, very subjective. How does somebody improve their ability over time to I guess disassociate feeling from progression, or at least understand how these two. Uh, things into play? That's a good question. Um, and, and like you said, certainly not an expert in this, but I think um, subjective data has value. And I think it's more of, I think it's important to put objective and subjective data into context than necessarily it is to go, oh, which one should I be pay, pay attention to or how should I marry them up? Yep. Because they may not marry up. And because I do give different uh, information, like, um, I've dealt with a lot of bodybuilders who were very much uh, kind of into the gestalt experience. Like they, like it feels hard. I wreck myself. I feel a pump. I feel soreness later. Um, I, I'm hungry on a diet. Um, I have a really good sense of motivation. Like they speak in all these kind of feeling terms, and that's how much how they gauge progress. But I sit down with their logbook and I go, "Bro, you haven't had a PR in like five years. Like we need to something something isn't here. Like you you're." You're managing to work hard, but you're not actually progressing. Like you've never actually got striated glutes on stage. Like I get you're, you're hungry. I get you're sore after your workouts. But um, I think I'm just trying to give an example of focusing too much on subjective versus objective data. Um, and sometimes I think some of the messages that we give can emphasize one over the other. Like mm-hmm. um in the bodybuilding world, you'll often hear like, we aren't weightlifters. The goal isn't to move weight from A to B. And some people will justify this as just, I ran the rack on dumbbells and then I did a couple drop sets and then I trained by feel and, and there's really no uh, structure uh, to to their training. You know, people will confuse um, variation for randomization in their training. Um, they will think that the hardest diet is the best. So, so this kind of thing, like, I think it's it's useful to be in tune with your body and be aware to how things feel, but at the same time, you need objective data to actually give you outcomes. And the subjective data is very valuable as well because it tells you about the sustainability of something, um, your stress response to it, um, whether or not uh, you enjoy it, and then therefore we're likely putting in a lot of effort, or whether you just kind of have to force yourself to do something, which again goes back to the state sustainability side. And there are things that we just can't get objectively. Like I would love to be able just to have one metric that would tell me that it was time to maybe take a light week or a deload. But in reality, I'm looking at, okay, are your loads progressing or your reps progressing or not? So like, are we seeing a stall in performance? Also, how's your sleep quality? 
you know, how are you, are you, are you dreading going to the gym? You know, um, what's your general mood like? Like these are all things that in aggregate you kind of need to make good decisions. And so I think it's important to be aware of how you feel and then also track objective data and then see how those two things relate to one another. And when they don't relate to one another, then you know that's something not to put a lot of stock into. Um, so I, I think that that's the main thing is getting them in context and seeing their relationship. Awesome. And Mike, if somebody is training uh, hard or they're not progressing, but they're still training hard and what they're feeling um, is difficult, um, what is your advice on how to remove or what are your thoughts on uh, what to do in situations where what somebody's feeling is limiting their progress or ability to continually train hard as necessary um, by the requirements of overload. So are you saying they um, they think that checking the hard training box is enough? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, correct. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you know, you just have a chat with them uh, that um, – First of all, that box could be checked excessively and the training is too hard and that they've either making suboptimal gains or no gains at all. And then you can also say that there is a variety of other boxes we have to check, like nutrition and recovery and, well, nutrition being a subcategory of recovery and of adaptation, and that we have to approach their improvement as a multifactorial complex system, which it is. So we start turning into a little bit more like engineers than people who say, I'm training hard. That's good mm -hmm. enough. I mean, that's like a four-year-old's assessment of progress. So, uh, you know, so but you, but, but you have to, I think, um, rather than scolding people for that sort of view, you can kind of acknowledge that they're coming from a good place and then bring them in. You say, listen, it's great that you're a, a fucking warrior and you're killing it in the gym. Love it. Let's talk about exactly what you're doing so maybe we can just make sure you're not doing too much because I'm loving the attitude, but we don't want to do too much because we're not here for therapy. We're here to get better. And then let's talk about all the other stuff you're doing. And a lot of times I'll have conversations like that with athletes. I used to coach a lot of athletes, and they'll be like, well, I haven't slept in days, and I don't even remember what food tastes like. And I'm like, motherfucker, you're not on Lord of the Rings journey to Mount Doom. What are you doing over here, right? So I mean, maybe you are. It's a good training modality, I suppose. I don't think Frodo really adapted to much of anything. Eric, being that you live in the Lord of the Rings, I'm sure you find this quite relevant. Well, the, the ring interfered with adaptation a lot. I mean, it, uh, he was ton, constantly right? being, being pulled by the Dark Lord. So like that, <laughs> that, that's kind of a, a low-grade stress all the time. And, but and then he got worse the closer he got to Mount Doom. hundred so. percent. I mean, it really, like, hey, bro, like, if he needed to hire Eric and I as sports scientists to be like, what am I doing wrong? Like, first of all, you brought only carbohydrate on this journey, and it's absolutely insufficient amount of it. And second of all, the ring is a net fatiguing stimulus. Give it to Samwise or something, and then you take a little deload at least from the ring. Right? Like, I carry it for five days. Samwise carries it for a day. It's not the end of the world. Well, maybe yeah. it is. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> treating a team sport like an individual sport. And not 100%. Relying on it's car quite out, selfish. So. Ah, but see, the ring like made him more selfish. That's the, <laughs> that's the complication. So, mm -hmm. but in any case, I think we're ready to to make a periodized plan for a ring delivery to uh, oh, you know that's it. Um, but yeah, but on a serious note, you know it's important to recognize that their hard work is great and uh, well intentioned. But first of all, modulating that level of work, finding out if it's in the right range, and second of all, making sure we're paying attention to all the other factors. So I, I definitely don't want to come at people and be like. 
you know, who cares how hard you're working? All that matters is recovery and nutrition. Because people will say that. And you're like, that. you can't possibly mean that. Uh, so it's great. It's great, great, great that they work. Because, you know, you could have it the other way around where they have no problem with meals. They get plenty of sleep, but then they train like missed sessions and don't train hard enough. And that's a problem in and of itself. So we take it for what it is. It's good. But let's work around all the other stuff and make sure that the work isn't excessive as well. Awesome. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have, you know, the individuals who are somewhat more analytical, a little bit reserved, some, you know, often at times even fearful of, you know, intensity and placing attention on their body for whatever reason. Um, how do you go about coercing them um, into actually training hard enough to make progress, um, even though they might be feeling like they train hard? Um, and that stress is sufficient. I would say that you, you again, meet them where they are. So you start, so let's say they're training really far away from failure and with not enough volume, just as an example, what you do is you say, I think you're on a really great path. And now that I'm in charge or whatever, I'm the coach, let's just add five pounds to the bar next week to everything, not the end of the world. You'll still be real far from failure. And then we're going to add a set to everything and see how you feel. And they do that. And probably because it's not really big disruption from where they are, it's not a big deal. And they say, I still feel pretty good. And then when they eventually make enough of those additions to start getting that sort of paranoia of like, oof, I don't know, I got sore. I don't know. Then you can just really calmly talk to them. Because the, the great thing about analytical people is that they're analytical. So you say, okay, it's a very valid concern that you think something is amiss because you're clearly detecting some kind of disruption to your body. <laughs> you don't tell them that that's really why we're going to train, but the, anyway, say, <laughs> so, okay, and, and that's totally a concern and it could very well be too much. Let's look at our objective criteria via science of what is too much and how you're feeling and check all those boxes, try to find some arrangement to see like, okay, do we really meet the criteria of doing too much? And be like, are you progressing? Yes. Is the soreness overwhelming and is still around in your next training session and reducing your force output? No. Do you have bruises on your legs after squats? No. Or is there any tendon macrostructural damage? No. And you, you know, you go through that whole list and then they're basically forced at the end of the list without you telling them to be like, hmm, I could probably go a lot harder than this, huh? You're like, and, and, and that's great, but we don't need you to go a lot harder. We just need you to go a little bit harder next week. That's it. And we're and if you ever feel like we're going too far, we're always going to back it up. And sometimes if they really freak out on you, just deload them and then slowly work back the other way. You know, it's not um, – training a lot of times isn't people think like we're going to get in shape now. No, you don't. You can take a long time with it because a lot of these folks, even when you just get them a little bit out of the comfort zone, they start making these crazy gains, which is my last point. Once you get them making really good gains – via getting them closer to where they're supposed to be intensity and volume wise a lot of times they're like wow i don't even know what i was scared of you know there's a big buy in there so uh that's my opinion on the matter meet them where they are coax them in slow and if they ever freak out talk to them because maybe they're freaking out legitimately but the only thing you can do is put objective measurements side by side with their subjectives and like eric said is that is it matching because if they're freaking out for some good reason well then jesus you as a coach should be agreeing with them but if they're not then they're just going to plainly see that that's the case and it might take two or three runs of paranoia deloads until they they just come a little further each time and then a year later they're coming as far as you want them to come Awesome. And I guess a really hot topic of discussion uh, of late, one that Brian Miner has been uh, speaking about at length on uh, his Instagram, and I'll point this one to you, Eric, is that the evidence-based community um, you know, has created this overwhelming 
fear or alarmism, you know, around training to failure and training hard and people are, you know, overly reliant on, you know, data and science as opposed to getting in there and learning the skill of training hard. So how do you go about teaching your clients, Eric, how to train hard and what that actually means for them um, as it relates to their goals? Yeah, I, I think um, I have a fair bit of experience looking at the difference between people's perceived exertion and actual distance from failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also have the unique perspective of coming into the game before there really was a strong science-based focus in bodybuilding or powerlifting. Um, well, I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, Fred Hatfield was around way before my time, but at least in bodybuilding, I would say there wasn't really a pocket of science-based kind of uh, popularity when I came into the game for the first few years. Um, so I just trained very hard and wrecked myself, uh, and then dieted and wrecked myself. And then as I started to to change, I, I, then I was like, Oh, there's better ways to do things. Um, now I think it's, it's interesting because I, I, I'm not always able to fully relate to someone who's let's say 22 right now and coming into it. And maybe the first information they got engaged with was like, Mike Isretel or something like that. Um, so they have a slightly different background experience. I, I will acknowledge that. And it may or may not be one that is as extreme as the kind of bodybuilding culture I got introduced to. But I don't necessarily know that people who are attracted to the sport of bodybuilding or powerlifting are short on effort these days, even with those changes. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think also the, many of the reasons we have, well, what we do with this information is important too. Like the whole flexible dieting thing has all been structured around because we need to diet 24 weeks to get into shape now. And the whole, let's do a recovery diet or reverse diet that, that, that debate is all based around the fact that, and I have to compete a couple seasons from now and it's going to take me you know, a, a year at least to make progress, uh, especially if I'm, you know, a drug-free bodybuilder. Um, so a lot of these strategies, like I want to hold myself sh- short of failure uh, so I can train again the same muscle group this week versus the old bond and blast once per week, a lot of the outcomes are that you end up doing more. Um, and it's, it's trying to find that peak, uh, you know, in the bell curve of where you're doing the most, but you also have the most recovery. Uh, that, that's where the debate around, you know, training frequency is, 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 you know, where's that, that optimal place where we're recovering, we can put in a lot of effective work and then do it as frequently as we can to then get a stimulus. And, you know, even though there's debate among folks in the evidence-based crowd, it's all two plus or higher when, when we know traditionally it's always been, you know, no more than once per week training in bodybuilding. So the result of a lot of these like evidence-based approaches in my opinion, has been we're doing this to allow us to do more, to be more effective. Um, so I, I would say I agree and I don't agree to some some level. Um, also, when you look at the literature on how hard do people train outside of like the bodybuilding community, um, man, it's not hard at all. Like uh, there's, there's a study where people who've been training at least six months were just brought to the gym and said, hey, what weight do you use for 10 rep sets on bench? And they go, oh, it's this weight. And not saying, hey, what weight do you use to train to failure? But then they ask him, okay, cool, let's put that on the bar and we'll do as many reps as we can. And the average number of reps was 16. 
with a standard deviation of five, which means there's a couple people who are doing well over 20 reps. Uh, I think there was actually more than 10% of them are doing uh, 21 reps or more with what they normally do for 10. Um, and 40% are doing, I think, uh, what was it? They're, they're basically under a five RPE in their normal training at all times, if I recall the data correctly. Uh, now, this is people in the gym six months, but that represents a huge amount of people because of the recidivism we have with training. <laughs> Most people are in there for six months and then stop. Um, so it's tough for me to go, oh, bodybuilders aren't working hard enough these days when I go, no, the people who really aren't working hard enough are people who have never been exposed to training. And uh, the creation of the RPE scale based on repetitions in reserve is to merge the subjective um, categorization that someone's going to have on how hard that was with an objective criteria of how far was I from failure. Because that forces the person to go, oh, I have to actually think about if I had a gun to my head, how many more could I do, you know? Mm -hmm. And even just implementing a scale like that, I think will make people train harder. Even though the intention in the bodybuilding community is to actually prevent yourself from going to a 10, in aggregate, if you just tell someone, yeah, you want to be training between a 6 to 10 RPE most of the time, and most of the time that's 6 to 8, so you doesn't limit your volume in a session, then they have to think about, oh, okay, so when do I have three reps left? And if they're normally training eight reps from failure, that's harder, even though it's still not quote-unquote hard in the bodybuilding community. Uh, it's kind of like that same thing that you see when you have people track food, they start losing weight, even though you didn't tell them to actually change anything. It generates awareness, and they start quantifying things that previously uh, they were able to you know, justify away. So, yeah, I, I think that statement that you, you kind of opened with, it depends on the population we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I think you take the RPE scale and you apply it to gen pop, they're going to end up training harder. I think you take that RPE scale and you show it to someone who read Arthur Jones and they're going to be like, you don't need an RPE scale. You just need to go to failure all the time, you damn pansies. So you're going to get two very different perspectives. Awesome. Mike, is there anything you want to say on that? No, that sounds really great. Um, when I was a personal trainer, which I did for a long time, it's one of the best tools for getting people to work a little harder when they're on that beginner, don't know how to really push themselves scale, is when they like do a set or in the middle of the set, they like they want to rack the bar, but they're not clearly close to failure. They'll look at you, and the first thing I tell them is, do not turn your head to look at me when you're squatting because you have a career and spinal injury. But if you happen to be in front of them at the time, you just smile and go, "You're good, you're okay." And they're like, "Okay," and then you just keep going because if someone's, it's like a kid hits his head, looks at you. If you're like, "Ah," they start crying. If you're like, "Ah," they're like, "Whatever." Uh, a lot of the same stuff works with clients and. Because, you know, when we all turn into little children under enough weight on the squat bar. So uh, if someone tells you, hey, you're fine, then you're good to go. Or, or they'll end a set early and they'll be like, oh, that was pretty rough. And they're like, yeah, that was pretty good. You could probably get maybe two more reps on the next set. And all of a sudden they have a number to go. And sometimes when, like, when you know they were six RP or, you know, like uh, RPE of four on a set of 10 on the first set, you'd be like, let's try to hit 12 after two minutes rest. They hit 12 just because you told them that's the number. They had no idea. They were going to stop at who knows when. They hit 12, and all of a sudden, they're, uh, you know, RPE of 6, which is decent. And now they're working. Now they're cruising. You're like, hey, next set, also 12. And they're like, that's great. Now you have numbers. Now you have weights. Now you have goals to beat. So the next week, you do 5 pounds more, again, for sets of 12s. Now that RPE is a little low, and, and so on and so forth. And if you're there with them every day or most days, after a while, they're cranking it. And then your job turns into making sure they don't crank it too hard.
which is probably harder than making people work harder. That, that you know, man, it's it's rough. You get into ego stuff where people are like, all right, three sets, three reps from failure, and you watch them and you want to say something. You're like, oh my god, they're gonna die. <laughs> they're gonna die. And like one half of a rep from failure, they rack it. And I'm like, was that three RIR? And they're like, I think so. You're like, okay. <laughs> a lot of you're not gonna have PRs for like three months working with me because we have to like rethink how we're doing this whole thing. I'm sure Eric's been through that whole shtick with clients before. So. Yeah, con- constraints are, are a funny thing. Like, they constrain you. That's b- by definition. And, but also they they give you the boundaries within which to work and which to try to work hard. Like, I remember when there was some point I would say in the early two thousands where everyone was really scared of overtraining, and this pendulum swings around, you know. Um, and you know, like many many recovery days, not doing certain movements how much volume am I doing, et cetera. Uh, and it was a totally different de- definition depending on who you talk to. Uh, and, and we've seen camps rise and fall between doing way too much or way too little. Uh, and it, it, it's like, it's, it's all a little arbitrary and it's very easy for us to buy into it because we operate within constraints. Once we've defined where we live and what we are and what things mean, that's, that's where we work within. So, you know, now people, They'll, they'll have the constraints of, of like the meta-analytic data that we're talking about of what's a reasonable number of sets per week. And they go, oh, I don't, I'm doing more than 10 plus per week per body part. Is that okay? And it's like, well, come on, man. Like before that meta-analysis came out, you were doing 30. And you didn't even know that was a lot, you know? Um, so I think uh, it's, it's a funny thing. Like we need them. Um, but at the same time, we, we need them to be nuanced enough and customized and malleable and, and not delivered like the Ten Commandments so that we can actually uh, make progress on an individual level and be able to give recommendations and context to different situations and people. So I think um, that's why I'm never really a big fan of just like, here's the number you should be doing. I, I think ranges, continuums, and then uh, situational changes to that is where we always have to kind of be coming back to so that it it constraints become useful versus uh, debilitative. Awesome, awesome. And I wanted to yeah wrap up this component of uh, the discussion with some personal experiences on you know your own individual I guess constraints or you know how things have influenced uh, your training effort or your perception of effort. And Ian's not here yet. Um, and I didn't want to throw him under the bus um, you know, without him being here, but he recently posted a deadlift video, was criticized for that. <laughs> Time um, to throw Ian under the bus. Yeah, but I'll throw him under the bus. Here we go. Here we go. There's Let's a bus here and everything. <laughs> You're the bus, Mike, so <laughs> full steam. <laughs> <Right on. laughs> um, you know, he was criticized for his lack of effort on that, and I wanted to talk to him um, about that. And obviously, he has a number of constraints that you know impact what his perception of hard training is. You know, Mike... What would be the constraints related to your perception of effort versus, you know, where it actually needs to be or any limitations there? Oh, man. Because um, you're seen as the bull. Most people view, you know, if we were to put this in context, sorry to interrupt, um, you know, people would see Ian as being, you know, somebody highly analytical, Eric being the middleman as always, and then Mike, you're just that crazy motherfucker who just, you know, trains hard and, you know, always pushes balls to the walls. So, you know, I thought it was an interesting Not analytical at all. Sorry, brother. <laughs> Not analytical at all. <laughs> you know, but, but in terms of training effort, um, that's, you know, 
Ian would be the more reserved uh, trainee as perceived by people online, whereas Eric's a lot more pragmatic and you know always in the middle ground. And then Mike, you're pushing, uh, you know, MRV. You're Mr. MRV. So I thought it'd be an interesting discussion to go through each of your, I guess, personal uh, experiences with that. Um, I used to train uh, a multi-set hit style back in college. Um, I thought that training to failure was logical, uh, et cetera. The only logical way, you know, I, was the, the whole thing, I was in the, the hit camp hundred percent and, um, my results were per my level of development at the time, unimpressive. I continuously would hit, uh, a training wall all the time for, from accumulated fatigue, a concept, which I neither knew what it was that it existed or that it had a terminology already. And then as I got more advanced, I started cutting myself shorter um, on uh, failure proximity, I uh, started to constrain my volume m more. And eventually, I guess this is pertinent to the discussion currently, my current experience over the last several years is uh, when I came to the dark side of special sports supplements, I made a very re uh, you know, interesting realization that I can willfully probably, um, it probably wouldn't be excessively unlikely that I could do this just standing in place, I can probably rip muscle off bone without the assistance of a barbell, just from the hypercontractility effect. This is disconcerting, and my emotional ramping up for training has, all, has been almost completely absent. Um, I'll do it for high reps every now and again, because by the time that I get emotional during a set to push closer to failure, I'm in, unable to generate the necessary forces required to get hurt. I used to psych up for sets of five, sets of 10. I psych down now um, because I am in a position where I can hurt myself greatly just by trying really hard. <laughs> so I'm on that end where I don't, someone asked me today on Instagram or Facebook, how often I trained to failure. I couldn't recall a historical moment in my memory within the last three years where I actually hit true concentric failure. Um, I stopped one rep short at the very least, usually less than that, two reps shy of failure. To be completely honest, I start mesocycles at five reps shy of failure, go to two reps shy of failure. Um, I'm now very aware of what my MRVs are, and I stay the fuck away from them because every time I pass them, I, something bad happens. So stop doing that. Um, I, I flirt with them a little and then back off. Um, and yeah, I'm sorry to disappoint <laughs> the uh, the train hard balls to the wall thing. Okay, truth truth be told, I usually light my testicles on fire to give me the motivation. To, and then I just like if I'm not bleeding, it's not real set. I count progress by the number of post set injuries I have. <laughs> no, that was that was very insightful, but um, very disturbing towards the end there. Thank you, Mike. Excellent. Eric, Thank you. <laughs> Eric, how's your uh, experience shaped how you perceive effort? Oh, man. Um, I'm, my career as, a, as an educator and a bodybuilder has been me working towards bringing myself towards doing what I actually recommend and getting further and further away from uh, do what I say but not what I do. Like I remember there was a workout I did during prep I think it was 2009, but it might have been 2007. I can't remember which prep it was. And my good friend and workout partner, Adam, at the time, um, you know, he called me out because, you know, I'd written this article about how you probably need to reduce volume during prep just to account for recovery. And he was like, Eric, you just did a 36-set 
shoulder and arms workout and you're like you're five pounds over stage weight and like i try to like you know the problem is when you when you know enough to to, to think you're an authority or whatever uh you're also uh, know enough to to make a bullshit and i was like well the thing is is that i'm because of the cardio i'm doing and the diet i'm in actually very good cardiovascular shape so i can handle the high volume right now and he was like then why'd you write that article that says you shouldn't do it and eventually Eventually, I was like, "Shut up!" <laughs> I was like, "I just want to work hard, leave me alone." You know. So, um, yeah, like I'm, I, I very much started as a stereotypical bodybuilder in terms of um, a lot, a lot of effort. And I think for the first two years of training, I made very solid progress. Um, and I think I have a pretty high tolerance to to doing more than I need to be doing or should be doing. Um, and then I, I started to actually get held up by a back injury. Uh, and then I, what I think was a rotator cuff injury, but nothing serious as it, as it resolved itself um, right around uh, 2006 or so. Um, got that all sorted and then did my prep. And that's when I got called out for doing 36 sets or whatever. Um, and then I was dubbed the Relentless Warrior by Jeff Alberts during my 2009 prep. It was like nine months and I dieted on really, really low calories at a certain point, tore my hamstring in the middle of prep and just kept going. Um, got on stage four times after I tore my hamstring. Um, so I, I did dumb shit for a long time. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm a few injuries in and, and finally, I'd say right around 2010 or 11, I started getting smart. Um, and I would say in 2011, I actually came in a little smaller in my upper body than I had in previous years just because I had kind of tapered my volume down and everything. And been like, you know, I need to be smart and just train short of failure. I need to bring my volume down. Um, I've been doing too much for years. I don't. I think I should just not work as hard I'm, and I'm getting my own way. And this is when I found out that my, my upper body responds to a lot more volume than my lower body does. I don't know if that's an epigenetic background or running track or just... And my whole mom's side of the family has huge thunder thighs. But, um, but nonetheless, uh, I've since then, like, become a little more rational and able to tap into the, the where I started and then um, apply logic to it. Like, I've only really felt comfortable programming for myself since, like, 2013 or 14. Uh, and I outsourced it at a certain point because I would either get scared of my history and just not train hard enough or just go into a place of, of just killing myself and neither one was very effective. So I had trouble finding that middle ground until recently, which is probably why I've been driven towards researching autoregulation and been so interested in it because it's trying to marry up that objective and subjective data. Um, and now I, I actually feel very capable of making performance gains. It's just, they come a lot slower because I've been training for almost 15 years. Um, so, that, that's its own little journey of trying to figure out what is a reasonable rate of progress when you're uh, this late in the game. Um, and more often than not, what holds me back is structural issues. So um, trying to fix, like I had to get hip surgery a year ago. Um, and then little things like that, just making, like certain, certain body parts of mine hold up really well and I can do a ton. Um, but just making sure that I pay attention to warning signs that this might break you if you keep it up, even though it's working. So trying to find creative ways to make uh, progress. So, um, like I'll push the failure on, you know, bicep curls, calf raises, leg extension, leg curl, all the live long day, you know, on like my, my last set. But, uh, like Mike, I am a lot more 
uh, intentional, I would say, with the way I program main lifts um, and, and things that have a much higher injury potential or, or just systemic fatigue. Um, yeah, I would say that's, that's kind of where I'm at these days. Awesome. And that was why I wanted uh, Ian on uh, this episode. Uh, he's still not here. But he... He's so sore from his workout, he couldn't make the Skype. <laughs> but I think this will be the final point of discussion um, on this. But he obviously came into the game from a very evidence-based, you know, analytical uh, viewpoint and has, as a result, not experienced the same, uh, you know, subjective, you know, perception of effort like you guys have coming from that hard training background. Um, the issue I see with that is that, you know, in learning everything he has learned or, you know, even people who uh, come into it purely from a scientific standpoint, they don't have uh, the experience of what hard training is. Final thoughts on how these individuals, because a lot of them are going to be listening to this podcast and similar podcasts, um, how can they better understand what it means and what it feels like to train hard without breaking themselves? And is there a time and place for people to sort of put away with what the literature says and just go in there and get messed up, so to speak? Um, I, oh, sorry. Here you go. Uh, thanks. Um, I don't want to speak for Ian, but I'm about to. Um, so I'm doing. I don't want to do this, but I have. <laughs> right. So um, I think that Ian uh, trains with a very um, high pro or low proximity to failure, with a very high RIR because he doesn't want to train so hard to have to reduce his training frequency mm. because I think training offers him a therapeutic outlet that he very much enjoys and is a critical yeah. part of his psychological life, which is super awesome. And I, th I think it, um, I think I talked to him about this. I think it's entirely intentional. Mm. Um, and he's posted about it. I, um, I don't think Ian is unfamiliar with how to push himself. I think he just knows that if he pushes himself so hard as to, reach for optimal gains, then he's going to reduce the optimality of psychological application of his training. Um, that, that's what I thought. Mm. Um, I, I still think that. Oh, so that's I'm very much from. aware of that as well, but there's been criticism yeah, yeah. online. Um, well, those people about... fucking retarded just have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> Sorry. Like, you, you know, I, yeah. I've actually had people on my, I had a, a, fo a follower, I, I suppose, call, call these people followers, um, uh, tell me that he really liked the way I train. And unlike some like pussy motherfuckers like Ian McCarthy, mm. who doesn't train hard enough. And I was like, yeah, I think Ian has his reasons for that, man. And thank you. But I don't think it's an apt comparison. And Ian got on there and he was like, you have no, no idea about anything I'm doing. And I was just like, well, you know, like, <laughs> I think Ian's been pretty clear about why he does mm. this. So um, and to finish my point, I actually don't think I've ever physically met an evidence-based person that, that doesn't train hard enough as far as failure proximity because of evidence-based constraints. Like, I've mm -hmm. literally never met one of those people. I'm sure they exist. I've just never seen them. I have seen people who are cutting the low end of the volume because they're super overtraining fears. Um, but, but you know, that's a little bit of a qualitatively different sort of thing than just not pushing it hard enough. They are within the set. They're just not doing – it's not enough dosage. Um, LOL from the sports supplements guy. But um, so <laughs> – you know what I mean? So, so yeah. that, that, that idea of like you, all you've been through is PubMed and you've just looked up to 
Eric Helms and Isratel your whole training career and you're training too like easily. I've just never seen that actually play out. I've literally never, I don't know anyone, nobody comes to mind that I've ever like been like, oh wow, you're like, I, what, what does come to mind is I've, I've done a bunch of seminars now and Jared Feather and I have trained a whole bunch of people across the world and they'll know our IR, our IR stuff and they'll talk about like, oh, I've been coached by 3DMJ guys or I'm currently being coached by them. And then they'll do a workout and they'll like grind close to failure. And I'm like, if Eric was here right now, he'd fucking murder you. I'm just not going to tell him you're doing this out of just sheer respect. You know what I mean? It was just like, I've just seen the opposite to where guys will pay lip service to evidence-based RIR stuff and then just not do it. So I don't know. Maybe Eric has a different perspective. Maybe he's seen the large swaths of people not push it hard enough. I've just seen most people push it too hard. That's why we came up with the MRV concept, by the way, because we're trying to say there's such a thing as too much. (laughs) But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So. Yeah, I also think like uh, seminars and like lifting mashups are (laughs) they're the time when people are going to go to failure. So it's it's you know like. Yeah, but that's like that. That tells you something culturally. That when a bunch of bodybuilders or powerlifters or lifters get together and they enjoy having a bunch of people do deadlifts until they puke, then maybe that's kind of their natural set point. But um, yeah, um, yeah. So you know, the thing is, I uh, I will say that I remember when Ian first did his uh, high frequency training. I think he started training daily. And he said he got, uh, it was the closest thing he would imagine would be like steroid-like gains since he was a newbie. Um, and I would, I would say that that is pretty much indicative that either the volume and or the intensity, relative or, or absolute, uh, was too low. The fact that pumping the, the frequency up that much uh, was that effective for him. Um, but that the, the flip side of that is, well, that's a viable strategy. You know, I, I always... I always uh, describe, you know, volume, intensity, and frequency as as a triangle that, as you shift the one side, the others have to that, that always maintains its, its its area. If that makes sense, and I'm sure I'm butchering math, but um, you can go really hardcore on 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 frequency, volume, or intensity, or maybe two, but you have to adapt the other. Like for example, the Bulgarian system of very frequently going near to a max, but doing very little volume per session. Is effective. Uh, it has some downsides to it, uh, just like uh, doing any kind of focused program like that would have downsides. But it can still work. You know, it's not like you know Mike Menser didn't have a great physique. You know, um, and there aren't people who have followed hits uh, that, that haven't had developed great physiques. I think you can take it too far in any of these directions. Um, like when you get to the point where you're training like every fortnight, that's probably not ideal. But um, but yeah, I. Uh, I think there is something to be said since we're talking about psychology for finding the the right type of program in terms of the balance of those three big picture variables with what really works for you. Mm. Um, this came up in a discussion I had on Facebook with Dr. Joe Komazuski where he was saying that the high frequency stuff's never really been that effective for him or a lot of his clients. And he is a coach from, I would say, maybe a decade or two uh, before I really saw a lot of people, uh, and you know, training two times a week or more was pretty rare, and it's just really not a part of. It, it doesn't mesh well with some of the older bodybuilding culture that this like every session needs to be a, you know, a black and white ad with 
you know, sweat coming off your face and, and epic music playing in the background and someone yelling, I'm Sparta at some point. Um, so like, yeah, if, if that's your workout, of course you can't train with a high frequency. And we've seen so many bodybuilding champions be effective with a one times per week frequency with a very high intensity of effort and or volume, one or the other. It could be like Lee Haney style workouts or it could be Dorian Yates style workouts. But nonetheless, there's many people of both philosophies who've done quite well. And I think that's probably more important if it results in really effective training and you being motivated about it and going to the gym excited every time uh, than maybe finding another 5% improvement by modulating two of those and going up here, which maybe just wouldn't wouldn't excite you that much. I'm not saying you shouldn't work towards you know, reevaluating some of your emotional stances towards training to be more effective. But I think um, there's something to be said for that at the very least. Yeah, awesome. And I guess we move on to the next subject now. That was a really insightful discussion. Uh, and talk about and I, live. Yeah, continue. I, I think we got an email. I got to go. <laughs> can, Ian, can Ian replace me? Because I, I'm, I tapped out at 6.35 or 6.30. It's 6.30 here. All right. Let's uh, tap you out, Mike. Thank you very much for your time, man. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, bro. Uh, Eric, see you in one of these very soon. And uh, Ian, hold down the fort for me, baby. I'll see you guys. <laughs> <laughs> see you, man. Bye. Awesome. Bye.